What a painful and moving end to a difficult novel. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the second half of The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, published in 1970. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves on the second Friday of the month. I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation on the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com in the follow-up podcast next month. I'd love to be able to share your comments and thoughts. Welcome to Bookshook. So this podcast is all about the second half of The Bluest Eye from page 108, the chapter beginning, See Mother, Mother is Very Nice, to the end. So we're introduced to Pauline Williams. Quote, The end of her lovely beginning was probably the cavity in one of her front teeth. She preferred, however, to think always of her foot. She has a lame foot. She's the ninth of 11 children and she has this deformed foot and loves to organise things. Quote, to line things up in rows, jars on shelves at Canning, peach pits on the step, sticks, stones, leaves and the members of her family let these arrangements be. When by some accident somebody scattered her rows, they always stopped to retrieve them for her. And she was never angry for it gave her a chance to rearrange them again. Whatever portable plurality she found, she organised into neat lines according to their size, shape or gradations of colour. Just as she would never align a pine needle with the leaf of a cottonwood tree, she would never put the jars of tomatoes next to the green beans. She's got two younger siblings called Chicken and Pie. Quote, when the war ended and the twins were 10 years old, they too left school to work. Pauline was 15, still keeping house, but with less enthusiasm. Fantasies about men and love and touching were drawing her mind and hands away from her work. Changes in weather began to affect her, as did certain sights and sounds. These feelings translated themselves to her in extreme melancholy. She thought of the death of newborn things, lonely roads and strangers, who appear out of nowhere simply to hold one's hand. Woods in which the sun was always setting. In church especially did these dreams grow. The songs caressed her, and while she tried to hold her mind on the wages of sin, her body trembled for redemption, salvation, a mysterious rebirth that would simply happen with no effort on her part. In none of her fantasies was she ever aggressive. She was usually idling by the riverbank or gathering berries in a field when a someone appeared with gentle and penetrating eyes who, with no exchange of words, understood, and before whose glance her foot straightened and her eyes dropped. The someone had no face, no form, no voice, no odour. He was a simple presence, an all-embracing tenderness with strength and a promise of rest. It did not matter that she had no idea of what to do or say to the presence. After the wordless knowing and the soundless touching, her dreams disintegrated. But the presence would know what to do. She had only to lay her head on his chest and he would lead her away to the sea, to the city, to the woods, forever." Now, these poor twins leaving school at 10 to work. My gosh, that's tough. She finds love. She hears a man whistling. Quote, 
The whistling got louder and still she did not turn around, for she wanted it to last. While smiling to herself and holding fast to the break in sombre thoughts, she felt something tickling her foot. She laughed aloud and turned to see. The whistler was bending down, tickling her broken foot and kissing her leg. She could not stop her laughter, not until he looked up at her and she saw the Kentucky sun drenching the yellow, heavy-lidded eyes of Cholly Breedlove. Did you see that coming? I certainly didn't. This is Pauline. This is Mrs. Breedlove. When she sees Charlie, all these thoughts and feelings come flooding at her as beautiful colours. This is her voice. Quote, when I first see Charlie, I want you to know it was like all the bits of colour from that time down home when all us children went berry picking after a funeral and I put some in the pocket of my Sunday dress and they mashed up and stained my hips. My whole dress was messed with purple and it never did wash out. Not the dress, nor me. I could feel that purple deep inside me. And that lemonade mama used to make when Pap came in out of the fields. It'd be cool and yellowish with seeds floating near the bottom. And that streak of green them June bugs made on the trees the night we left from down home. All of them colours was in me, just sitting there. So when Trolley come up and tickled my foot, it was like them berries, that lemonade, them streaks of green, the June bugs made all come together. Trolley was thin then, with real light eyes. He used to whistle. And when I heard him, shivers come on my skin. So Pauline has this rotten tooth. It reminds me of the marigolds that couldn't grow in the bad soil that represents sort of the bad society, in my mind, that will not allow people to thrive. Quote, There must have been a speck, a brown speck, easily mistaken for food, but which did not leave, which sat on the animal for months and grew until it cut into the surface and then down to the brown putty underneath, finally eating away to the root, but avoiding the nerves, so its presence was not noticeable or uncomfortable. Then the weakened roots, having grown accustomed to the poison, responded one day to severe pressure and the tooth fell free, leaving a ragged stump behind. But even before the little brown speck, there must have been the conditions, the setting that would allow it to exist in the first place. She moves north and misses home an awful lot. Pauline gets value from how she is perceived by others, which is very interesting, and I'll talk about later. Quote, money became the focus of all their discussions, hers for clothes, his for drink. The sad thing was that Pauline did not really care for clothes and makeup. She merely wanted other women to cast favourable glances her way. Rousseau has an awful lot to say about this. It's called Amour Propre, and I'll talk about it later. Trolley visits Polly at her employer, asking for money for booze, and this scares her employer a lot, and Polly has to find work elsewhere. She begins going to the movies. Quote, There in the dark her memory was refreshed and she succumbed to her earlier dreams, along with the idea of romantic love. She was introduced to another physical beauty. Probably the most destructive ideas in the history of human thought, both originated in envy, thrived in insecurity and ended in disillusion. In equating physical beauty with virtue, she stripped her mind, bound it and collected self-contempt by the heap. She forgot lust and simple caring for. She regarded love as possessive mating and romance as the goal of the spirit. It would be for her a wellspring from which she would draw the most destructive emotions, deceiving the lover and seeking to imprison the beloved, curtailing freedom in every way. Pauline experiences racist doctors when she's in labour. Quote, the old one was learning the young one about babies, showing them how to do. When he got to me, he said, now these here women you don't have any trouble with. They deliver right away and with no pain, just like horses. 
she goes on, I hurt just like them white women, just because I wasn't hooping and hollering before didn't mean I wasn't feeling pain. What do they think? That just because I know how to have a baby with no fuss that my behind wasn't pulling and aching like theirs? Pauline becomes very moralistic. Quote, when Sammy and Pekala were still young, Pauline had to go back to work. She was older now, with no time for dreams and movies. It was time to put all of the pieces together, make coherence where before there had been none. The children gave her this need. She herself was no longer a child, so she became, and her process of becoming was like most of ours. She developed a hatred for things that mystified or obstructed her, acquired virtues that were easy to maintain, assigned herself a role in the scheme of things, and harked back to simpler times for gratification. The narrator goes on, She came into her own with the women who had despised her by being more moral than they. She avenged herself on Charlie by forcing him to indulge in the weaknesses she despised. The narrator goes on, She let another tooth fall and was outraged by painted ladies who thought only of clothes and men. Holding Charlie as a model of sin and failure, she bore him like a crown of thorns and her children like a cross. The house she works at is very ordered and clean. It's a completely other world. Quote, Pauline kept this order, this beauty for herself, a private world, and never introduced it into her storefront or to her children. Them she bent toward respectability, and in so doing taught them fear, fear of being clumsy, fear of being like their father, fear of not being loved by God, fear of madness like Trolley's mother's. Into her son she beat a loud desire to run away, and into her daughter she beat a fear of growing up, fear of other people, fear of life. All the meaningfulness of her life was in her work, for her virtues were intact. She was an active churchwoman, did not drink, smoke or carouse, defended herself mightily against Cholly, rose above him in every way and felt she was fulfilling a mother's role conscientiously when she pointed out their father's faults to keep them from having them, or punished them when they showed any slovenliness, no matter how slight, when she worked 12 to 16 hours a day to support them, and the world itself agreed with her. Such a disparity there between the wealth and poverty. She remembers how she used to enjoy making love to Cholly. Her religion takes care of her now, I think. She really lives for the next world. There's the tale of Cholly's birth now, how he is brought up by his aunt, Jimmy. Quote, when Cholly was four days old, his mother wrapped him in two blankets and one newspaper and placed him on a junk heap by the railroad. His great aunt, Jimmy, who had seen her niece carrying a bundle out of the back door, rescued him. She beat his mother with a razor strap and wouldn't let her near the baby after that. Aunt Jimmy raised Cholly herself, but took delight sometimes in telling him how she had saved him. He gathered from her that his mother wasn't quite right in the head, but he never had a chance to find out because she ran away shortly after the razor strap and no one had heard of her since. Cholly thinks what God looks like. Quote, God was a nice old white man with long white hair, flowing white beard and little blue eyes that looked sad when people died and mean when they were bad. Aunt Jimmy becomes quite unwell and there is a moving description of the hard life of black women living in this area at this time. They only feel free when they are older. Quote, they were through with lust and lactation, beyond tears and terror. They alone could walk the roads of Mississippi, the lanes of Georgia, the fields of Alabama unmolested. They were old enough to be irritable when and where they chose, tired enough to look forward to death, disinterested enough to accept the idea of pain while ignoring the presence of pain. They were, in fact, and at last, free. And they reflect on their life when they were younger. Quote, everybody in the world was in a position to give them orders. White women said, do this. White children said, give me that. White men said, 
come here. Black men said, lay down. The only people they need not take orders from were black children and each other. Trolley discovers Aunt Polly dead. Quote, on a wet Saturday night, before Aunt Jimmy felt strong enough to get out of the bed, Essie Foster, she's the next-door neighbour, brought her a peach cobbler. The old lady ate a piece, and the next morning, when Trolley went to empty the slop jar, she was dead. Her mouth was a slackened O, and her hands, those long fingers with a man's hard nails, having done their laying by, could now be dainty on the sheet. One open eye looked at him, as if to say, "'Mind how you take hold of that jar, boy?' Trolley stared back, unable to move, until a fly settled at the corner of her mouth. He fanned it away angrily, looking back at the eye, and did its bidding. And if you read 2666 with me, you'll be reminded of the Madonna of Guadalupe with one eye closed and one eye open there. At the funeral, Trolley was the, quote, object of a great deal of attention. And Jimmy's brother is going to look after Trolley. After the banquet, Trolley goes with Jake and two girls called Suki and Darlene to a pine wood. And Trolley and Darlene are found making love by two white men. Quote, there was no mistake about their being white. He could smell it. At this point in the book, I know that I'm supposed to feel a lot of sympathy for this Trolley character, but I'm finding it very difficult because I know how he hurt his daughter Pecola so badly in the very opening chapters this is what makes this is such a difficult and interesting and nuanced read anyway these white men forced trolley at gunpoint to continue making love trolley quote could think only of the flashlight the muscadines and dialy in his hands and when he was not thinking of them the vacancy in his head was like the space left by a newly pulled tooth still conscious of the rottenness that had once filled it Never did he once consider directing his hatred towards the hunters. Such an emotion would have destroyed him. They were big, white, armed men. He was small, black, helpless. His subconscious knew what his conscious mind did not guess, that hating them would have consumed him, burned him up like a piece of soft coal, leaving only flakes of ash and a question mark of smoke. He was in time to discover the hatred of white men, but not now. Not in impotence, but later, when the hatred could find sweet expression. For now, he hated the one who had created the situation, the one who bore witness to his failure, his impotence. There's that rotten tooth imagery again. And we've got more Freudian thinking from the narrator. We've got that displacement anxiety. He's taking out his anger on something else. Trolley worries he may have made Darlene pregnant. Quote, Trolley knew it was wrong to run out on a pregnant girl and recalled with sympathy that his father had done just that. Now he understood. He knew then what he must do, find his father. His father would understand. Aunt Jimmy said he had gone to Mason. So he takes a bus to Mason to find his father. He's 14 years old now. And he does eventually find his father, but he is rejected. And it's a very, very moving and very powerful scene. The narrator describes how Trolley is now free after the scene with the father. Quote, In those days, Trolley was truly free. Abandoned in a junk heap by his mother, rejected for a crap game by his father, there was nothing more to lose. He was alone with his own perceptions and appetites, and they alone interested him. Trolley meets Pauline and is ill-equipped to be a parent. Quote, The aspect of married life that dumbfounded him and rendered him totally dysfunctional was the appearance of children. Having no idea of how to raise children and having never watched any parent raise himself, he could not even comprehend what such a relationship should be. Had he been interested in the accumulation of things, he could have thought of them as his material heirs. Had he needed to prove himself to some nameless 
others, he could have wanted them to excel in his own image and for his own sake. Had he not been alone in the world since he was 13, knowing only a dying old woman who felt responsible for him, but whose age, sex and interests were so remote from his own, he might have felt a stable connection between himself and the children. As it was, he reacted to them, and his reactions were based on what he felt at the moment. Charlie is drunk and sees his daughter, and I'm thinking... The narrator has explained the very complex emotions coursing through Cholly. Have a listen to this quote. If he looked into her face, he would see those haunted, loving eyes. The hauntedness would irritate him. The love would move him to fury. How dare she love him? Hadn't she any sense at all? What was he supposed to do about that? Return it? How? And he commits the act that we were all told about at the beginning of the novel. Continuing the narrative, we're introduced to a male, quote, misanthrope, which means a hater of mankind. Quote, as in the case of many misanthropes, his disdain for people led him into a profession designed to serve them. He was engaged in a line of work that was dependent solely on his ability to win the trust of others, and one in which the most intimate relationships were necessary. Having dallied with the priesthood in the Anglican church, he abandoned it to become a caseworker. Time and misfortune, however, conspired against him, and he settled finally on a profession that brought him both freedom and satisfaction. He became a, quote, reader, advisor, and interpreter of dreams. It was a profession that suited him well. His hours were his own, the competition was slight, the clientele was already persuaded and therefore manageable, and he had numerous opportunities to witness human stupidity without sharing it or being compromised by it, and to nurture his fastidiousness by viewing physical decay. Although his income was small, he had no taste for luxury. His experience in the monastery had solidified his natural asceticism, while it developed his preference for solitude. Celibacy was a haven, silence a shield. All his life he had a fondness for things, not the acquisition of wealth or beautiful objects, but a genuine love of worn objects, a coffee pot that had been his mother's, a welcome mat from the door of a rooming house he once lived in, a quilt from a Salvation Army store counter. It was as though his disdain of human contact had converted itself into a craving for things humans had touched. He has an interesting family history, and his name is Elihu. I'm thinking, why are we being introduced to a brand new character so late on into the novel? And we will find out. The description of his background is quite academic and formal, very intellectual. Quote, he read greedily but understood selectively, choosing the bits and pieces of other men's ideas that supported whatever predilection he had at the moment. Thus he chose to remember Hamlet's abuse of Ophelia, but not Christ's loves of Mary Magdalene. Hamlet's frivolous politics, but not Christ's serious anarchy. He noticed Gibbon's acidity, but not his tolerance. Othello's love for the fair Desdemona, but not Iago's perverted love of Othello. The works he admired most were Dante's, those he despised most were Dostoevsky's. He marries, but she soon leaves him, and he becomes a minister called Soaphead, and he hates his landlady's dog. Quote, he was revolted by Bob and wished he would hurry up and die. He regarded this wish for the dog's death as humane, for he could not bear, he told himself, to see anything suffer. It did not occur to him that he was really concerned about his own suffering, since the dog had adjusted himself to frailty and old age. Soaphead finally determined to put an end to the animal's misery and bought some poison with which to do it. Only the horror of having to go near him had prevented Soaphead from completing his mission. He waited for rage or blinding revulsion to spur him. He's not impressed with the world that God has created. Quote, 
Soaphead suspected that he himself could have done better. It was in fact a pity that the maker had not sought his counsel. So he becomes this spiritualist. Quote, his cards advertising his gifts and services reads... If you are overcome with trouble and conditions that are not natural, I can remove them. Overcome spells, bad luck and evil influences. Remember, I am a true spiritualist and psychic reader, born with power and I will help you. So a little girl walks into Soaphead's church and she appears to be Pecola because she wants blue eyes. And he gets her to poison the dog that he couldn't bring himself to. Quote, take this food and give it to the creature sleeping on the porch. Make sure he eats it and mark well how he behaves. If nothing happens, you will know that God has refused you. If the animal behaves strangely, your wish will be granted on the day following this one. So Eddie Ho then writes a rambling letter to God full of self-righteousness and superiority. He mentions how he's abused girls and how he has the power to give Pecola blue eyes. What a crazy guy. We then move into the summer. Claudia narrates the hot summer when they try to plant marigolds and they hear talk of Pecola and her pregnancy. And it's all very offensive. There's these accusations that Pecola may be partly to blame and that the baby probably won't live. Claudia, the narrator, says, quote, So it was with confidence, strengthened by pity and pride, that we decided to change the course of events and alter a human life. She goes on, Let's ask him to let Pecola's baby live and promise to be good for a whole month. They're talking about speaking to God. Okay says her sister but we better give up something so he'll know we really mean it this time so they're going to make sure the baby lives their plan is to plant all the marigold seeds and forfeit the money they would have gained by selling the seeds door to door the money they have gained so far they will bury continuing the narrative we have this scene with Pecola and she has a split personality schizophrenic conversation with an imaginary friend about her blue eyes and the father's rape It's all very moving and very, very sad. Pecola is basically having a breakdown. Claudia, the narrator, delivers an impassioned monologue about how Pecola was turned mad by her situation. Quote, A little black girl yearns for the blue eyes of a little white girl and the horror at the heart of her yearning is exceeded only by the evil of fulfilment. She feels guilt for planting the seeds too deeply. Quote, How could I have been so sloven so we avoided Pecola breed love forever? She ends the novel realising that she is wrong to feel guilt. Quote, And now when I see her searching the garbage for what? The thing we assassinated? I talk about how I did not plant the seeds too deeply, how it was the fault of the earth, the land, of our town. I even think now that the land of the entire country was hostile to marigolds that year. This soil is bad for certain kinds of flowers. Certain seeds it will not nurture, certain fruit it will not bear, and when the land kills of its own volition, we acquiesce and say the victim has no right to live. We are wrong, of course, but it doesn't matter. It's too late. At least on the edge of my town among the garbage and the sunflowers of my town it's much 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 too late it was the fault of the earth ultimately of society that Pecola did not thrive that summer and so then the novel ends initial impressions it's very moving tale it's very academically written it's very like a like a very long thought experiment I feel like she is somehow trying to justify or write out this how how it is possible that Pecola could have got into such a terrible situation. The narrator or implied author is so horrified by what has happened, 
in the narrative that he or she is seeking to create a why, even when she says she's going to focus on a how. Personally, I feel like this is an attempt in some way to excuse the vile players in this horrible history. This is why I agree with Toni Morrison's comment in the opening forward when she says, quote, many readers were touched but not moved. I wasn't moved, but it was not for the reasons she outlined. It was because I felt that at every turn the narrator was trying in some way to justify the behaviour of the characters that caused the downfall of Peckler. She tried to generate sympathy for Cholly, but I knew what he was capable of and was never able to feel that sympathy. The narrator made so many justifications for the behaviour based on psychoanalysis and Freudian thinking, which also felt a little bit dated. It was written in 1970, 50 years ago, so it's to be expected. But what do you think? Where she absolutely got it right was in exposing a society dogged by racism that made and created this breeding ground for Pekula and her family. On reflection, after my initial thoughts, I, I have thought more about Cholly. I don't think the narrator is excusing Charlie's behaviour. This is why it's such a thought-provoking, interesting book. She's just showing how it's complicated, how you can have this very, very difficult upbringing, and she's not excusing his behaviour, but we can see how the society has generated this self-loathing. There's some very, very interesting ideas in the novel. So I mentioned last podcast how racist and elitist Geraldine was. Well, and then we've got this prejudice from Polly Breedlove. Quote, Northern coloured folk was different too, dicty-like, no better than white for meanness. They could make you feel just as no count, except I didn't expect it from them. That was the lonesomest time of my life. I remember looking out them front windows, just waiting for Trolley to come home at three o'clock. I didn't even have a cat to talk to. Maybe this is just born out of ignorance and struggle. And obviously racism is used by white people constantly. For example, Cholly getting the bus to Mason. And obviously Cholly being forced to make love. Religion, again, is a big theme throughout the book. There's an interesting fact about dialogue tags. That when people are speaking, often the dialogue tags of who is speaking is not put in there for some reason. For example, at the funeral... There's just a generalised voice. It's almost as if they have the same voice or no individual voice. Maybe that's what the narrator is trying to express. What do you think? What is the reason for that? The desire to impress others is an interesting theme. And I was actually reading about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher, and he talks of this amour propre, which is where esteem must be found by the approval of others first. And he contrasts this with amour de soi, which is love of self. And certainly there are quite a few characters, as I mentioned earlier, that are very keen to gain esteem through approval of other people, which is an interesting idea. Charlie is contrasted with Pauline because he says, quote, Had he been interested in the accumulation of things, he could have thought of them as his material heirs. Had he needed to prove himself to some nameless others, he could have wanted them to excel in his own image and for his own sake. Whereas Polly, remember... Quote, money became the focus of all their discussions, hers for clothes, his for drink. The sad thing was that Pauline did not really care for clothes and makeup. She merely wanted other women to cast favourable glances her way. I would definitely recommend this book to friends, anyone really. It's such an interesting portrayal of, of society imbued with this racism and how it makes for this awful breeding ground where tragedies like Peckler can 
occur i would recommend it to anyone it's beautifully written i would love your thoughts so do let me know and then i can put them into my follow-up podcast next month i'd just like to talk a little bit now about tony morrison she was born in 1931 she died in 2019 she's american novelist ss book editor she was born and raised in Lorraine in Ohio and she graduated from Howard University in 1953 with a BA in English. She went on to get a master's degree in American literature from Cornell University and in 1957 she returned to Howard University and got married. Had two children before divorcing in 1964. In the late 60s she became the first black female editor in fiction at Random House in New York City. In the 1970s and 1980s she developed her own reputation as an author and her perhaps most celebrated work Beloved was made into a 1998 film. Her works are praised for addressing the harsh consequences of racism in the United States. In 1996, the National Endowment for the Humanities selected her for the Jefferson Lecture, the US federal government's highest honour for achievement in the humanities. The very same year, she was honoured with the National Book Foundation's Medal of Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. In May 2012, President Barack Obama presented Morrison with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And in 2016, she received the Penn Saul Bellow Award for Achievement in American Fiction. And in 2020, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. There's some interesting information on Wikipedia about her early life. She was the second of four children from a working-class black family. Her mother was born in Alabama, and they moved north with her family as a child. Her father grew up in Georgia. When her father was about 15, a group of white people lynched two black businessmen who lived on his street. Morrison later said, quote, he never told us that he'd seen bodies, but he had seen them. And that was too traumatic, I think, for him. Soon after the lynching, George Wofford moved to the racially integrated town of Lorraine, Ohio, in the hope of escaping racism and securing gainful employment in Ohio's burgeoning industrial economy. And in 2015 interview, she said that her father hated whites so much he would not let them in the house. When Tony Morrison was about two years old, her family's landlord set fire to the house in which they lived while they were home because her parents could not afford to pay rent. Her family responded to what she called this, quote, bizarre form of evil by laughing at the landlord rather than falling into despair. Morrison later said her family's response demonstrated how to keep your integrity and claim your own life in the face of acts of such, quote, monumental crudeness. What an incredibly moving and difficult upbringing. I'd like to talk a little bit now about December's book, Dune, by Frank Herbert, published in 1965. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to page 234, beginning Muad Dib, whatever that means. I've always really enjoyed science fiction, and this book is supposed to be a classic, so I know nothing about Frank Herbert. I'm going to read the first page, or first couple of pages, and give you my initial impressions. The book looks... Very interesting. There's a sand dune and a large, two large planets in the background, or suns. This is the 50th anniversary edition. In the very front cover, it says, The Litany Against Fear. Is it a poem? I'll read it out. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Book one, Dune. 
Starts off with a quote from the Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. A beginning is the time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. This every sister of the Bene Gesserit knows. To begin your study of the life of Muad'Dib, then take care that you first place him in his time. Born in the 57th year of the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, and take the most special care that you locate Muad'Dib in his place, the planet Arrakis. Do not be deceived by the fact that he was born on Caladan and lived his first 15 years there. Arrakis, the planet known as Dune, is forever his place. In the week before their departure to Arrakis, when all the final scurrying about had reached a nearby unbearable frenzy, an old crone came to visit the mother of the boy, Paul. It was a warm night at Castle Caladan, and the ancient pile of stone that had served the Ashredes family as home for 26 generations bore that cooled sweat feeling it acquired before a change in the weather. The old woman was let in by the side door down the vaulted passage by Paul's room and she was allowed a moment to peer in at him where he lay in his bed. By the half-light of a suspenser lamp, dimmed and hanging near the floor, the awakened boy could see a bulky female shape at his door, standing one step ahead of his mother. The old woman was a witch shadow, hair like matted spiderwebs, hooded round darkness of features, eyes like glittering jewels. "'Is he not small for his age, Jessica?' the old woman asked. Her voice wheezed and twanged like an untuned balisette. Paul's mother answered in her soft contralto. "'The Atreides are known to start late getting their growth, your reverence.' "'So I've heard, so I've heard,' wheezed the old woman. "'Yet he's already fifteen. "'Yes, your reverence. "'He's awake and listening to us,' said the old woman. "'Sly little rascal,' she chuckled. "'But royalty has need of slyness. "'And if he's really the Kvitsatz Hadrich, well...' Within the shadows of his bed, Paul held his eyes open to mere slits. Two bird-bright ovals, the eyes of the old woman, seemed to expand and glow as they stared into his. "'Sleep well, you sly little rascal,' said the old woman. "'Tomorrow you'll need all your faculties to meet my gom jabbar.' And she was gone, pushing his mother out, closing the door with a solid thump. Paul lay awake, wondering, "'What's a gom jabbar?' In all the upset during this time of change, the old woman was the strangest thing he had seen. Your reverence? And the way she called his mother Jessica, like a common serving wench instead of what she was, a Bene Gesserit lady, a duke's concubine and a mother of the duckle heir. Is a gom jabba something of Arrakis I must know before we go there, he wondered. He mouthed her strange words, gom jabba, kvitsatz hadrech. And there we go. So there's a lot of interesting new words. I am looking forward to reading this novel I wonder why this old lady is treating the mother with a certain amount of disrespect, considering she is a Bene Gesserit lady. I'm sure we'll find out very shortly. Look, thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them, and I'll hopefully put them into the next podcast in two weeks. The email is bookshook at yahoo.com, or you can leave a comment on the Bookshook YouTube channel. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. I look forward to discussing the first part of June at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of December. That's the 10th. See you then. (laughs) 